Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Voices from 2020, an audio program powered by Stranova, exploring strategic reflections on our business present from the perspective of the future, and featuring your hosts, Bill Veltrup and Firehawk. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Voices from 2020. Welcome to the seventh in our podcast series called Voices from 2020, where we travel forward in time to an ideal future and interview some of the visionaries and architects of that future in order to help us all remember how we got there. I'm Firehawk, and along with Bill Veltrup, we'll again be your hosts for this trip to an ideal 2020. As we make the turn, into the second half of our year-long exploration into what it took for wholeness to become the North Star of all the human organizations on this planet, we wanted to again thank Brad Redderson for hosting this series on his Stranova site. It's truly an honor to be part of Brad's passionate inquiry into strategic innovation. In this month's podcast, we're taking a departure from our normal interview format. We're inviting you to listen in on a roundtable conversation Bill and I had with Mike Thomas and Peter Garn, who along with the two of us are founding partners of the Monterey Institute for Social Architecture, or MISA as we call it. MISA is a collaboration that's dedicated to support visionaries within organizations. Support them to make the design choices that will shift their companies towards greater and greater wholeness. We aim to find out exactly what it takes for people and corporations to embrace the notion that their primary purpose is to create true wealth for all of their stakeholders all of the time. But first, a bit of background on Mike Thomas and Peter Garn, our conversation partners for this month's episode. Mike's last corporate role was as Vice President and Director of Human Resources at Granite Construction Incorporated. In that role, he championed an innovative approach to employee and leadership development that contributed significantly to Granite's being selected by Fortune Magazine as one of the 100 best companies to work for for four consecutive years. He was a strong voice for corporate social opportunity throughout the construction industry long before that movement gained acceptance and traction. As of 2007, Peter Garn had over 25 years of business experience in planning, designing, and implementing strategic change initiatives. Peter worked at Lockheed and Hewlett Packard. What distinguished Peter in this area was his broad set of competencies and his ability to drive strategic change efforts from concept all the way to results. Peter demonstrated unique skills in high-tech, 
hypergrowth global and virtual business environments where dynamic change is the norm and strategic alignment, organizational agility, and sustainable performance are essential to business success. Now, in reporting back to you from an ideal 2020, we again had to abide by the values and ethics of the Guild of Evolutionary Time Travelers, so we couldn't identify specific corporations in our conversation. We solved this problem by creating a composite corporation called C2020 that embodied the fundamental changes we had begun to see in more and more corporations around the world. In this podcast, you will hear the four of us talk about how these corporations have become more wholeness-oriented as they are learning how best to serve all stakeholders all of the time. We underscore the importance of all-direction transparency in achieving that wholeness and the role of innovative feedback loops in supporting the movement towards wholeness. We also touched on the rise of social networking methodologies in transcending frozen bureaucracies and much, much more. The conversation is in progress. Let's tune in. So we're sitting here in the ideal future. We're, we're looking at a composite corporation, and we're calling that C2020. And we're, we're looking at what are the characteristics in this ideal composite corporation. And particularly, what, you know, what do we mean when we say all stakeholders all the time? What's different with, our, with the stakeholders? What's different in the relationship between C2020 and its various stakeholder groups from how it was back in 2007. As I start to think about all stakeholders all the time and what it's become, I, was, I began to ask myself, well, what's underneath that? Why would we have changed our focus from sort of partial stakeholders some of the time to all stakeholders all the time? And um, what came to me is the fundamental shift of a belief that we held back in 2007, uh, really widely held all around the world. And that, so the shift was to a belief that there is enough for all. That was a fundamental shift in our consciousness. And that there could be, and that now there is, a new economics based on this belief in abundance. Place that there's enough for all. Because when there isn't enough for all, then you've got to make choices that hold people outside of. You've got to put somebody outside of your circle of activity. And we saw that over and over and over again with, you know, saying that we didn't have to account for the natural resources that we took from the earth. That we could just, you know, we could just say that's all free. We've got that free forever. And so when you change your belief to that there's enough for all, then... All stakeholders all the time make sense. It's actually really very logical because what we learned from history was that when corporations focused on more than just one or two narrow stakeholder groups, their results skyrocketed. And so we were able to prove that all stakeholder focus really created much more, not only financial wealth, but they had all these other great consequences that added up to what we call, we've called over the years true wealth 
for all of those people that any corporation touches by being an entity that's creating in the world. So I remember the study. It was by Cotter and Haskett, and they're Harvard Business School people, and, and they were comparing cultures. And they were looking at the cultures of corporations that basically focused on satisfying at least the three primary stakeholder groups. That would be the customers, the shareholders, and the employees. Mm -hmm. And this was flying in the face of a lot of thinking that basically say we have to stay focused on the bottom line on costs or you have to stay focused on the customer experience. Mm -hmm. So why <laughs> focusing on all of the stakeholders, why is that going to make, why did that make those corporations more profitable? Why did that make them more successful? Well, I thought there was a different event that really happened that kind of caused people to first tune into wholeness of all stakeholders. Because at the time, I mean, there were corporations that were paying attention to those three key stakeholder groups, but it wasn't sufficient and it really wasn't making the kind of impact that it had. But I think, you know, it was a time when Al Gore really talked about global warming and, and his Inconvenient Truth film that started to reach the, the masses in bigger numbers. And I, I think what really was the tipping point or the turning point was the conversations that were happening around the dinner table, like with CEOs and their families, particularly their kids, asking questions of them mm -hmm. about you know, the, the trajectory that we were on as a planet in terms of all the things that could get undone. And it started to really create conversations inside of those corporations with the executive boards, uh, the executive teams and the boards, about the contribution that they specifically, each corporation, was starting to make to that. And it started with a few corporations making choices. I mean, there were things where some corporations actually, you know, departed from publicly traded companies to get out of the, the mindset of being managed on a quarterly basis and only focusing on the short term. They moved to private equity. They started to think differently and act differently. And... You know, when they started to think about what were they contributing as a corporation to the demise of the planet, they started to figure out things that they could do. A great example is Roy Anderson and what he did with the, the carpet business, you know, to, to really have zero waste as an end product and to empower the employee stakeholder group in figuring out how to solve that problem. Well, those kinds of examples started to happen in many corporations. But it took the dialogue and the consciousness raising of the leadership teams to understand that there was a bigger game at stake than just being a corporation and just making profit. And then those studies that you mentioned, Bill, were really useful to them to understand that they could not only contribute to the long-term trajectory of the survival of the planet, and at the same time could be successfully financially. Mm -hmm. um, and that shift, that, you know, that took a good five years or so to, to kind of um, you know, really solidify and start to move into actions. Um, and there was a, a way big opening to, to think about creative, inventive ways of how they could change their business models into something that was much more far-reaching. Uh, but I think that's an important historical point of, of, mm -hmm. of the inflection point that occurred there. So you're, you're mostly addressing kind of the waking up 
of corporate leaders understanding the, cons the negative consequences of their current practices and taking steps toward rectifying that. And what I want to hear is what is it that also has that improve their, their uh, business sustainability? What is it in that that helped make them more profitable and more sustainable as a business? Well, I think the key uh, there is the shift to the thinking in a sustainable way. There was a shift at that same time in the early 2000s, uh, I think aided uh, a lot by Al Gore's film, but other other things that were going on at the time. It shifted the whole mindset, uh, I think, of corporate leaders from that short-termism and the financial gain and to the, they began to gain that awareness around sustainability. And um, I think a lot of them were really surprised when uh, they had been looking at, for instance, the whole concept of corporate social responsibility with kind of askance, you know, as as if it were, uh, okay, it's like going to church on Sunday or something. It was, you know, we'll do a little bit of good there and then, you know, satisfy our sense of responsibility till they began to realize that it wasn't really corporate social responsibility alone. It was also corporate social opportunity. What they began to realize was that in terms of engaging their workforces and uh, increasing productivity and increasing the, the real coin of the realm in those days, which is creativity and innovation and just new ways of creating new products and new ways of using their core competencies, uh, they found that um, this whole area of socially responsible behavior on their part really... Uh, created a, a huge passion within their workforce. Uh, people began to feel really good about what the companies were doing. They began to show up every day excited to be there because they knew they were making a, a difference um, and with their new awareness about how we had been consuming the resources at a rate that was not sustainable and we were poisoning and creating pollution at a rate that the Earth could no longer absorb. People got really concerned about that. So to the extent that their company, uh, where they could be making a living, but also doing something that made a huge difference in the future of, of the, in the sustainability for not only their children, but all future generations, it just created a whole new way of thinking about their work. Mm. And they became very excited. And like Peter was saying, the whole zero waste became a huge uh, thrust for organizations. Not only was it good for the profitability of the organizations, but it was huge for the environment and for you know the damage we were doing to our ecological systems. So it really unleashed and just set people on fire within organizations. And I don't think uh, the corporate leaders had really anticipated that, but they, they rode that wave, and to today, you know, it's it's hard to even imagine that time where people didn't think about all the stakeholders all the time. Because today, it is so clearly obvious that that is the only way to go with an organization that wants to be sustainable and be highly successful and to be able to attract the kind of employees and create that kind of excitement within their organizations and create that innovation and creativity 
uh, amongst their people and uh, have them just thrilled to show up every day. And as we know, we had a huge problem evolved demographically back in the mid, you know, 2005 to 2010 with major population shifts and, you know, the whole group of people retiring that left a, you know, a real shortage in the workforce. So the, the demand for labor increased dramatically. Uh, and so your ability to compete was uh, actually pivotal to your success going forward and having the capability to, you know, pursue and, and, and act out the strategic vision and dreams of your organization. So mm -hmm. this gave them that, that added uh, draw power. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think some people just backed into it. They didn't really realize what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't think they appreciated just how powerful a force that was mm -hmm. that they were unleashing. Mm -hmm. and, and it helped them also shift away from that command and control authoritarian model mm -hmm. of control. How did it help them do that? I think it began to, when they began to uh, allow the people within their organizations to take, to have more voice mm -hmm. in how their jobs were designed, so that they could show up every day and do what they did best. They began to see a dramatic improvement in overall results within their organizations by allowing more autonomy and more control of the people within the organization, not only of their own jobs, but of the direction in the future. And there's a, a number of cases where companies were thought that they were struggling and they were perhaps in a situation where their industry was consolidating and they were like a regional firm and they were being, you know, they were fearful about their future and they would turn it over to their employees. Mm -hmm. And there's many, many different stories about how the employees envisioned a totally different future for that organization. And so now they were tapping into the energy of all their people, not just a few leaders at the top. And that combined energy created forces that were way beyond what they'd ever imagined. Okay. Let me see if I'm getting... The, the picture you're sending here. Uh, so what I'm hearing from you is that not only were the leaders, you know, really looking out the world, but the reality is that as consciousness has grown and awareness has grown, and especially in the face of kind of increasingly competitive labor market, the organizations that were going for wholeness, that were going for making a difference in the world, were very, very attractive to these more conscious employees. Exactly. And in order to equip them to take care of the, I mean, to operate in ways that eliminated waste and that made a difference to the planet, didn't pollute, this challenged them to technological and organizational innovation. It required that they make the all the information around what wholeness, the whole system, available at all levels. And so that was enormously empowering and freeing to the people in the system. So that's what I'm hearing from you. Is that a fair? Yeah, and actually the concept of transparency, which kind of came on the scene with some of the uh, problems that evolved in the late 1990s with corporations and some of the ethical issues and major 80, 90 billion dollar corporations literally vanished overnight because of the uh, uh, missteps and the ethical inappropriateness of things they were doing. So there was a big thrust that corporations needed to be more transparent to the public and to their shareholders. 
but it kind of took another leap in the second half, uh, in, in the 2008, 2009. To, the transparency took on a new meaning or a new look because it began to become transparency to all the employees of all the things and the costs and all the things that usually were kept in the leadership's domain in terms of the information about that organization and their resources and their strengths and their potential and possible markets. That information began to become transparent and obvious and clear and available to all the employees. And all of a sudden, uh, the concept of leadership from the middle took a whole new step forward mm -hmm. so that you had organizations that began to kind of operate like that orchestra that was the Orpheus, where leadership became not a single individual or, you know, leader-centric type of organizations, where leadership became very fluid within organizations. Mm -hmm. And it shifted, and people began, you know, one day they would lead and another day they would follow, and it created a level of uh, adaptability and uh, flexibility and nimbleness that, that characterizes the successful organizations today, that they're very uh, capable of shifting and adapting whole new mm. concepts and new markets. And with the explosion of knowledge during that time frame and since then, the organizations that are thriving today are the ones that are so alive and open and they're living organisms. And they began to see them as living organisms with the huge amount of energy that's available uh, as they began to appreciate more that the pure energy of the people that existed, you know, within their organizations and, and the connectedness. It all began to just tie together. Mm -hmm. I have one other piece I'd like to add to the mix of um, this picture. Um, because there was another, um, one of the other aspects of all of this had to do with place, had to do with not just the transformation of the workplace. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Herman Miller was a pioneer in this of you know, building a factory where, you know, productivity gains, you know, paid for the whole factory in three years, you know, and it was, I mean, it was just phenomenal, the economics of what happened, but... So these are talking about zero carbon uh, installations. Zero carbon installations, daylit spaces, um, you know, spaces with uh, greenery and gardens and cafeterias and, you know, pleasant places to work, you know, uh, Adams made a fortune off of lampooning the cubicle culture, you know, this this sort of narrow, um, fenced-in, windowless, you know, air-conditioned mm -hmm. spaces, which, you know, actually turned out to be significantly unhealthy for people at, at a lot of different levels. So, so there was this whole restoration of place, but it also took on another aspect, because it became clear to corporations that they could much better do their work by really being connected to communities. So rather than being, you know, these global players that were, you know, manipulating the board all over the place to get really grounded and really connected in the communities that where the people were so that there could be all kinds of other uh, connections and availabilities, you know, not just child care and, you know, health facilities and all that other stuff, but you could weave a whole web together without any single corporation having to bear the whole brunt of that. 
But it added up to a lot of the things that Mike was talking about in terms of you know people's wanting to be at work and, and being able to balance their work lives and the rest of their lives as people. And that that whole thing in the last years has really uh, shifted. But it, you know, but it had a lot to do with a reconnection with place that happened. And, and what's the space in which we do our work? What's the place in which we do our work? So what I'm picturing there is that back in the, in the early aughts, the, yeah. uh, the corporations that were global you know, we're doing good just to make some concessions to cultures in different parts of the world. And what I'm picturing is that what's happened now as we're in, in the ideal year 2020 is that corporations really have come a long way in terms of measuring their social and environmental impact in the various places that they have a footprint. Mm -hmm and they're being held accountable mm -hmm. so they, that the feedback loops have evolved to the point that people in the different places in the planet are able to show how this corporation is faring mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of their contribution to the well-being of life at that location. Mm -hmm. So there's been a real breakthrough in, in uh, dashboards yeah, inside of corporations, in communities, yeah. In, big time. in regions. Big time. Well, there, there is one other aspect that I wanted to mention that we, because we've been talking about like existing corporations and that, but I think the other thing that got unleashed, you know, in the, I'd say 2006 to 2010 time frame, was the environmental concerns um, also unleashed um, the same entrepreneurs that existed, you know, prior to the dot com bust that was around the internet, but this became more around the environmental concerns. Mm -hmm. So there was still lots of creative bodies out there who in that layoff period was still disheartened by the jobs that they had to go back into larger corporations and work. And it just, it just reignited a lot of their creativity around the social problems that we had. So for example, where China was at one time building 500 and their plan was to build 500 and something new coal um, production plants. I mean, entrepreneurs kind of formed companies, not only in Silicon Valley, but in, in partnerships with places like China and India and others to come up with creative, um, good, solid business ways to actually do, it, do different methods for the same cost or, or cheaper um, that sold, you know, the, those governments on a different way of approaching that. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have to repeat the patterns that the, the established industrial nations had done. Um, and that, so we need to put some more light around the entrepreneurs yeah. and who showed up there. That's, 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 I'm glad you brought that up because the, wasn't the, um, the investment of uh, first, first uh, some transformational philanthropists, but then subsequently the government began picking it up to invest in developing the standards and the accounting, standardized approach to accounting for true total costs mm. and making them, making, have that showing up in everybody's face so that when you looked at whatever you did, you looked at the true costs, the true now and future cost that then caused people to, to shift toward 
those innovations that the entrepreneur, it really provided the stimulus for the entrepreneurs to make breakthroughs as you were looking at the new economy. Because when you look at the true costs, there's no way that you can justify um, the way most of our world is run today. And so that's a tremendous pressure to innovate and to recreate our corporations and to create new kinds of, you know, of organizations. Yeah. Absolutely. It's going to build on, you know, your picturing of the, the as you move toward transparency inside of the organization mm -hmm. and uh, as well as outside uh, and having uh, employees who are seeing the whole and responsible for the whole that represents a major kind of an infrastructural shift, a shift in the patterns of decision-making, the patterns of how you organize work. Mm -hmm. uh, so as an organization design meister, I'd just be interested in your, dis in your, in your riffing a bit on Corporation 2020 from the standpoint of how, how, are the, how is the design different? How are the patterns of leadership and decision-making and work and integration and all innovation and all of that stuff, what how does that show up in terms of organization design? Well, some of, I think some of the things that started to happen is that the, the traditional paradigm was fairly much around structure and hierarchy and you know, command and control kind of modes. And I think the onset of, of lots more of social networking that was going on had a huge influence inside how work got done. So, I mean, everybody knew that the Internet was going to cause a great shift. What do you um, mean by social networking? There's all these new networks that started to pop up like MySpace and uh -huh. uh, things that they're, you know, executives and their, their children's, you know, the average employee's children were, were kind of playing playing in, but the, the essence of, of networking really has to do with kind of social capital and, and at, at the bottom line it's like who do you really trust mm -hmm. and who do you really go for for information and mm -hmm. whether it's around creativity or it's around strategy or it's around technological information um, and what started to happen in corporations, it, it had been happening for years but it was like no one saw it. Um, is that the, the networking at the level of where the work gets done, mm -hmm. where the flow of work happens, there was deep relationships and pockets of people who always kind of uh, move together. Well, you know, the greater tools around uh, social networking analysis, um, people like Rob Cross from the University of Virginia and Karen Stevenson and others had developed, you know, methods and tools to, to actually discover a lot of those and what leaders started to tune into was to appreciate that it was really their social capital that made a, that really made the company what it was. Mm. Um, it wasn't you know all of this great executive leadership that got paid a hundred times what that the working the average working person made, mm. but it was really a different window in a, a different view, and they started. So the executives actually started to pay attention to that and started to look at who were those thought leaders, who were those people that were critical in those networks. Mm. And the empowerment that Mike talked about, it started to go to those small communities of people mm. to understand what needed to be done. Well, they, that led to a transformation of how 
their core processes were, were, were taking place and how work could actually get done to meet the kinds of dashboards that were now starting to show up that were broader. Not only to, even in the dashboards, these groups of folks started to influence those dashboards mm -hmm. because they weren't complete enough. They weren't holistic enough. Mm -hmm. They didn't hit the social values of these folks. And don't forget at that time, we had huge challenges around what they were calling talent management in those mm -hmm. days, which was how do you retain, how do you attract and retain the talent because there was again a scarcity model that there wasn't enough people to do all the things that corporations needed to be done. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it turned out that that was a lot of hocus pocus. I mean, once they really <laughs> turned to those folks and really empowered them to really influence, I mean, Retention was never an issue because people were on fire about what they were doing and the difference that they were making mm -hmm. to their communities, to the planet, um, and at the same time to the profitability of these corporations and of themselves. All of that, I mean, just kind of generated incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so corporations forgot about that and all the, all the bureaucratic shit that they were doing administratively to figure out that really kind of went away and the people really started to talk about what their own developmental needs were mm -hmm. and different models came into play in, in terms of supporting them and growing their capability based on really what they needed to do to achieve these larger kinds of accomplishments. Mm -hmm. um, so redesign happened much more organically, mm -hmm. organizations flattened. There was a lot less structures. I even remember some of those corporations when they created those rules that, you know, the, the, the lowest salary to the top salary would be no greater than 10x. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, it blew away some of the things because all of a sudden there was a different feel that was happening where people much more felt like they were in it together. Um, and the role of these CEOs played much more in their ecosystems of connecting partners, building relationships, improving the quality of those relationships of the whole ecosystem to serve the same metrics that they all were going after. Mm. That was a big shift, though, don't you think? They began, the real shift came from looking at trailing indicators, trailing financial indicators, which was all they looked at, to looking at the leading, leading indicators, absolutely much. which created the kinds of futures that they wanted for their organizations. And so, uh, one, I think technology had a big impact on that. Uh, I also think the redesign of, of, of compensation systems, for example, not that the corporate executives would have got, not gotten there, but when they redesigned their compensation structure so that their incentive comp was based on stakeholder model and how they were serving the needs of the stake, each of the stakeholders and what the metrics were for each of those, that's when that leap from there, I mean, that, if that's how they're being paid, that leaped right onto their dashboards. And that began to be what they focused on uh, as uh, executives within the organization. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. 
And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.